thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. What makes someone tough? Is it a relentlessly difficult upbringing, a certain sport or coach? How about physical hardship? While these things may contribute to toughness, Greg Everett believes that those are stimuli that are just vehicles for exposing one's character, capability, capacity, and commitment. Better known for his founding of Catalyst Athletics and coaching of renowned Olympic weightlifters, Greg is the author of Tough, Building True Mental, Physical, and Emotional Toughness for Success and Fulfillment. That's a pretty tall order, but with actionable steps provided, Greg believes that most are up to the challenge. Here it is, episode 470. Welcome to another episode of the Premier Podcast on Strength Conditioning, where Mr. McQuilkin and I melt faces, burn hearts, rip them out, and do a whole bunch of amazing stuff on this thing called Power Athlete Radio. And not just us, our amazing guests. Do we do. We got a hell of one today. I'm actually pretty excited about having Greg Everett on. So for those of you guys that have been living in a cave without internet and have never snatched, clean, and jerked, or even picked up a bar, you might not be familiar with Greg Everett, but Greg is the owner, operator, and really the brain behind Catalyst Athletics. If you've done any Olympic lifting at any point and Googled anything, Catalyst pops up. Uh, I've been friends with Greg, geez, over 10 years now. Uh, we're on a, you know, almost a weekly email chain and, uh, I reach out to him constantly for information and he's always, you know, full of banter and some good observations. And I was super stoked when he reached out and said, I got this new book that I'm writing. Will you take a look? And I, I read the, uh, you know, his original manuscript, he shot over to me and I read and then finally got a book in hardcover to go through. So we're going to talk about tough today. Uh-huh. Beautiful book. In previous episode, Greg joined us on 127 Ooh. back in 2015. Dude, I'm telling you, Greg and I have been friends for a long time, obviously meeting through uh, our mutual good friend and friend of the podcast, Rob Wolf. But uh, I've always considered Greg a switched on individual and somebody I always love connecting with. And so when he told me I'm writing a book about toughness, I'm like, send that shit. I'm in. And uh, we dive into this podcast, um, into the book on the podcast with um, some pretty good, you know, like, like some uh-huh. granule, like, uh, you know, get, getting into the variance nuance of how it's developed, the different elements, and more importantly, how it can be cultivated. That's right. And not only the, the origin of the ideas in the book, we actually get to pick them up and try to rip them apart, and which just goes to show the value of them. So they're simple words that have such a deep meaning and emotion to them that it, he truly is a great writer. Yeah, no, he is a good writer. That it empowers any parent, coach, athlete out there for building and developing toughness. Well, toughness is such a easy word to throw around like, oh, that guy's tough or, you know, has toughness. And it's something that's used within pop culture and just within society with almost just without a second thought. Mm-hmm. And to have somebody sit down and write a deep dive into the word of toughness, what it means, how it's cultivated, and more importantly, the elements that build to it, I think is, uh, is really impactful. And I know for me, um, you know, as a father and also, you know, working with athletes and everything we do to be able to look at this and be able to plant these seeds at different points so that we can help people on the journey to, you know, ultimately being tough. I mean, and this goes in with like our Angela Duckworth podcast on mm-hmm. grit. And this has become something that has become you know, something that's very talked about, whereas 50, 100 years ago, you really didn't probably have to argue about somebody's toughness. But because the fact that our worlds have become, uh, you know, an easier, simpler, you know, everything's at the touch of our fingers. Not only forward facing, but we get to select 
what we put out there for the world. And that's, that's which we get into on the podcast a little bit. Yeah. But so that, that, that is dangerous. No, it's good, man. I, uh, I'm ready to dive on in. So, uh, guys, thanks for joining us and, uh, get ready. Cause, uh, here we come with Greg Everett and tough. We've been friends for a long time, but anybody listening who doesn't know you, can you drop us a little macro 10,000 foot view, a little uh, elevator pitch, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, run catalyst athletics, which is, um, a weightlifting team, of course, but also uh, we publish books. We do all kinds of online content, you know, video article, programming, that sort of thing since uh, 2006. So that's 15 years now, I guess, at this point, which is pretty ridiculous. Uh, used to co-own a gym with the Rob Wolf. Uh, so that goes back a while to, I think, 2003. Um, I was a competitive weightlifter. Now I just coach, thankfully. Uh, that ship has sailed and was torpedoed and sunk to the bottom of the ocean a little while ago. Uh, so now I just do things like write silly books and try to enjoy life out here in the middle of nowhere. So you moved up to Oregon. Yeah. Let's see. 2016. Yeah. Oh, wow. Been out here for central Oregon for a while now. Yeah. You were in Northern California and obviously, uh, you know, seeing your tax dollars get spent in, in, I guess, irresponsible ways and looking at the climate, you decided to pull the ripcord and move to the middle of nowhere in Oregon. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm from the Bay Area, the heart of Silicon Valley. Uh, Google, Facebook, Apple, everybody right in my neighborhood. So my wife and I actually moved back there in 2008 from Southern California, and it was good for a few years, and then it just got completely out of control. I mean, our own employees couldn't afford to live there anymore. So it's kind of one of those things where um, it just wasn't the same place. You know, when I grew up there, it was pretty much all aerospace tech, which is why my dad was there in the first place starting in the 60s. And, uh, you know, there were still orchards around in various places, believe it or not. And now it's just, you know, six-story condo buildings and, uh, you know, 2500 bucks a month for a, a one-bedroom apartment that isn't particularly nice. So we, we did. We pulled the ripcord and got out of there real quick. So where, where are you guys living now? You're uh, kind of central Oregon. Yeah, we're about 45 minutes north of Bend, which gotcha. is the only recognizable name in the area to anyone not from here. So really small town. We're out with some a little bit of property uh, right on the Deschutes River. So yeah. I pretty much never leave my house or property unless I absolutely have to. Well, I got to compliment you on your office, man. This is one of the nicest from our Power Athlete Radio guests. We got some beautiful pictures up of some Olympic weightlifting and a couple guitars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple in there. When uh, when we were kids, uh, my mom's from Vancouver. So, you know, we, we lived in L.A., obviously. So we would drive to, uh, you know, visit my family up in Vancouver. And we would drive through and go through Bend, Oregon and stay at, like, the end of the Seventh Mountain and... Like, you know, went to all this like horseback riding and, uh, you know, whitewater rafting and just did a bunch of bitch and stuff in Bend, Oregon. So I was I always really liked that part of the country. Yeah, and it's it's one of those places where you don't live here if you like to stay inside. It, there's just no point. I mean, there's anything you can think of outdoors you can do. I mean, I can drive 45 minutes and go skiing. Uh, you know, I can go out there and go backpacking any number of places within, you know, an hour, hour and a half drive at the most. So it's pretty amazing. Nice. Well, sounds like an upgrade. Um, yeah, dude. Uh, so you wrote a brand new book, man. And, uh, you know, I know you kicked me over a PDF of it and I was actually stoked to get a hard copy. And as I'm sitting here, I'll show you the book obviously is called tough, very simple, 
uh, streamlined name for something that is anything but. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know in terms of like, you know, your background, Olympic weightlifting and, you know, especially me, um, you know, playing football as long as I did, the word toughness gets thrown around so much actually ad nauseum. And uh, there's all these, you know, secret ways of, you know, building toughness and evaluating toughness. And it's, it's one of those buzzwords that people just seem to use. And yet um, you felt the need to do a deep dive into not only understanding what is toughness, but how it can be developed and cultivated. Yeah, it's one of those things where the, the original publisher who offered me a book deal essentially was like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and change this title. Um, and I was only 80% upset about that because it, I wasn't totally sold on that uh, term, but I couldn't think of anything better. That's what made the most sense to me. But then I also had to spend the entire first chapter explaining what exactly toughness was. Uh, because like you said, there are, are so many weird associations and connotations with that word. And depending on who you talk to, you're going to get completely different stories about not only what it means, but how you develop it and, and whether or not you need it and why you need it. So I just kind of felt I had to make the case, you know, right out of the gate and, you know, all the feedback I've gotten so far uh, has really been kind of surprised at how, broad this term actually is right how much it really encompasses in terms of you know not just physical ability or not just you know resilience which is kind of the buzzword these days um, but you know really every facet of our our lives and the way we experience them so i mean just to i mean I've, probably the easiest way to start this is how do you define toughness what is it and more importantly why is it so important for individuals to you know, build it because it, it's not something that just is inherent. Um, maybe it is. And you have a section in the book that talks about nature versus nurture is toughness inherent within people or is it something that's developed? And I think like much like everything else, it's probably a combination of everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think even if it is entirely nurture, it goes back to such an early age that we're not aware of it anyway. So it might as well be nature. Uh, it's not something you're doing consciously as a five-year-old. Right. Um, so I, I broke it down into four elements, uh, character, capability, capacity, and commitment. Uh, it was not my intention for that to be an alliteration. It's just kind of how it worked out. So character is, you know, knowing, truly knowing your identity, who you are, and really importantly, being secure in that identity, right? Because that's, that's knowing our values, what's important to us, what's meaningful, uh, understanding our motivations, you know, why are we compelled to do what we do? Uh, and then that security and that identity is what prevents us from, you know, just getting engaged in this ridiculous competition and one-upmanship and, or, you know, these desperate attempts for validation from strangers and, you know, all the things that we end up doing when we're not secure with ourselves. Um, capability is not just would physical that be, skill. Um, uh, not to cut you off, but uh, would that be like false bravado? I mean, uh, a lot of times. Oh, yeah, like false that's where bravado. that comes from. Yeah, so yeah it's, was... it, you know. I was just going to say the, the, the classic, you know, bully uh, persona is that overcompensation for just extreme insecurity, this constant terror of being exposed as, you know, being a coward. And so they'll just flip it the other way and just go hard to the paint on everybody, hoping that that prevents their being exposed as, you know, being who they know deep down who they truly are. So, yeah, that's the false bravado. That's the, the guy who can't shut up about how tough he is. Uh, versus people who are truly tough 
they don't have to tell you just like, you know, the greatest athletes in the world don't have to come and tell you every five minutes, how great they are. You already know, they just go about what they're doing. The, um, the other thing, and I liked how you kind of plug this back into antiquity in that, uh, you know, every culture has as their first literary work and really just the, some of the most amazing literary works are these heroic epics with this hero's journey, you know, the uh, Iliad, the Odyssey, Beowulf, and I can't pronounce the one from Sanskrit, but I mean, it's like every major civilization has some form of heroic epic as their first, um, you know, first written piece of, of literature. And it's pretty amazing that they all follow this hero's journey. You know, uh, you know, Beowulf fight the good fight, you know, love lost, love won, you know, here now all of a sudden I'm, I'm facing my fears and then coming back. And now I'm in this hero's journey to you know prove myself. I mean, that's kind of a, a been a foundational story in literature for thousands of years. And that idea of toughness and perseverance and all that, it's all you know, woven into that. Yeah, it's, it makes it pretty apparent that that is an inherent uh, desire for us, right? That is something that we're, we're very enthralled by, we're attracted to, we want to embody it, uh, even if some of us are not entirely convinced we can. But the fact that we desire so much to live vicariously through those stories at the very least, uh, to me at least, suggests that it's an inherent quality of human beings to feel that way, you know, to have that confidence, that security, that ability, um, you know, to be able to handle anything we encounter and, and you know, uh, provide help and safety to others in a lot of cases, not just ourselves. So there, there's definitely very clear ties, you know, to human nature in there. So how, uh, oh, sorry, your text going. Yeah, let's, let's keep rolling, Greg. I know we got three more very important components and then we can yeah, dive yeah. into each one as, as we see fit. So the next one, capability. So capability, and this is one of those things where you ask most people what it is to be tough and they're going to come up with the, the obvious answers, like, you know, being able to defend yourself in a fight, uh, being able to climb a mountain, these things, very obvious physical abilities, physical qualities, strength durability, that sort of thing. But in my mind, it goes far beyond that. And we're talking about um, not just those physical qualities, but physical skills, you know, athletically speaking, but also the, uh, you know, more refined skills and, you know, knowledge experience, right? So it's, it's having as broad a collection of capability and knowledge as possible um, because that is what allows us to be as prepared as possible for any unpredictable contingency, right? So we may have this really odd, broad collection of abilities and knowledge. We're not sure how they're going to fit together, but that's the point. We run into some adversity, some hardship, some challenge, and suddenly we're able to put those things together synergistically uh, in a way that we you know, never could have predicted. And when we can't predict what's going to happen, what we can predict is that the more of those things we possess, the better our chances of having what we need, having the tools in that toolbox in order to be able to be successful through that. So um, skill. So, I mean, roughly skill acquisition is how you're looking at it. Like the more skills that somebody can develop. And I guess like uh, a big part of skill development is also mentorship. So, I mean, I, I think absolutely. about, you know, every skill that I've developed, uh, you know, even when I've been terrible at things and the analogy I use is like learning to weld and fabricate. I had mentors and people that, you know, uh, mentored me through that process and, 
you know, I was awful and I kept doing it until I wasn't awful. And those mentors were able to come back and be like, Hey, you know, this looks like dog shit. Now this is looking better. Continue to prove, continue to prove. And then there's, you know, constant effort, constant work. And I don't know without some form of mentorship or more importantly, Hey, try this, you know, not like, Hey, let me do it for you, but mentoring you and like leading you and like actually teaching you on this journey uh, is really how you develop these skills. At least the ones that are developed well. Yeah, that that is absolutely the gold standard. And that's what we all need to strive for, especially with the more important skills. Um, because it, it doesn't just impart the knowledge, but it, it's tied directly to the experience, right? Because, you know, what's what's the greatest form of learning ever invented is just doing it, practice over and over again, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, building on that. But like you said, when you have that mentor there, you know, a master of his or her craft, to kind of guide you, give you, um, you know, some hints of what to do, give you suggestions, give you feedback and not tell you what, or not tell you exactly what to do, not do it for you, but allow you that experience with their expert supervision. Absolutely. That's how you develop, uh, you know, anything really high quality in terms of skill and, and knowledge. I mean, we don't send kids off to their rooms to learn calculus by themselves, right? With the book, they go to a classroom. So they have that interaction and that leadership there. How important is failure? Oh man, you're going to get me on the failure thing. Um, well, I mean, well, uh, to- I, I, you know, like it's it, just to give you an, I mean, um, use some analogies or just some terrible cliches, you know, the age old Rocky Balboa, Balboa, you know, uh, the ground has taught me more than, you know, victory has. And, you know, we learn more in defeat. I mean, all of these cliches that I've heard from every Rocky movie and every football coach who's ever stood up in front of us, uh, you know, there's this idea that there's some valuable lesson in defeat and, and, and failure that has to be cultivated. There, there are multiple contexts in which you have to look at failure a little bit differently, right? So um, to respond to that directly, yes, there are potential valuable lessons in failure. They're not automatic. Failing doesn't magically provide you with lessons. You have to ha- take an active role in that experience and pull those lessons out of it. So that means you have to have that mindset. You have to have that eagerness and that willingness to do the work from that, right? Because look at how many people fail in their endeavors and then just give up, right? They didn't learn anything clearly from that, except maybe that they just didn't want to try. Uh, And that's not a particularly great lesson. But um, we kind of have this weird fashionable attraction to the idea of, you know, I forget the guy's name off the top of my head right now, but, you know, fail forward, uh, fail 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 early, fail often, fail forward, whatever. Okay, that's fine. But what I don't like is the encouragement of failure as if that in particular is this tool that you should seek out. So in in my opinion, you are trying to avoid failure through the best possible preparation um, that, you know, the best possible choices, uh, you know, using the feedback you're receiving, but inevitably if you are taking risks in order to achieve something big, there is always that chance of failure. And so knowing that you go into it, expecting that to happen eventually and being ready to actually use that for your purposes to take advantage of it. So I almost look at it not so much as failure uh, as kind of like field testing, right? So you've got this idea, this plan, you're gonna take it out in the field, you're gonna see how it runs. Something's probably gonna break down. So you're gonna take that information back, rebuild a little bit, go back, continue that process. So, uh, 
you know, the, the, the classic um, story is, um, you know, Edison was asked by a reporter, how did it feel or how does it feel to fail a thousand times trying to invent the light bulb? And Edison said, I didn't fail a thousand times. The light bulb was an invention with a thousand steps. So if you're looking at the whole process perspective, if you reach that ultimate goal eventually, then that means no part of that was technically failure. They were missteps, they were backward steps, they were course corrections, whatever, uh, testing. Failure is only failure if you stop that process, right? Or that's just quitting, either one, depending on how exactly it happens. It's kind of like um, gambling. As long as you're at the table <laughs> playing and you don't cash out and walk away, you know, then like you don't realize your wins or your losses. And I think all too often we haven't lost yet. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it, part of the thing. And then I'm, I'm with you. What, what I fucking hate about, um, you know, all this like failure forward, all this is that and my most favorite, favorite, favorite uh, poster to see on anybody's house is what could you accomplish if you if uh, failure was never an option or if, uh, yeah. you know, fa- you know, that type of shit. And you're like, well. Uh, without some element of failure, I mean, if, if nobody failed at anything and everything everybody magically did just came to fruition, then like, you know, how would the, you know, like that's so, what's the word? It would be meaningless. It, it's, <laughs> it's not uh, an accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. no, it, I mean, it's, uh, well, I'm, I never fail. It's kind of like uh, I used to roll with these billionaire dudes and uh, the way they made their money was their dad gave them like 250 million and then gave them 10 years to become billionaires and pay him back. So they were all billionaires and because their dad seeded them with 250 million and the deals that they got into were like, oh, I'm going to buy, you know, this rich dude's house and I'm going to sit on it for a couple of years and then double my money type of shit. And right. like, like it, it, like, as I was listening to this, I was like, fuck you guys. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly easy to, when you have 250 million to basically, you know, four times your wealth in 10 years and then, you know, give the money back and it just... Like that, like that situation, I was like, I need to get as far away from these people as possible. Yeah. Let me know when you've made a million dollars from nothing, then I'll, I'll be interested in talking to you. Yeah. And, uh, uh but, but yeah. well, I was gonna say that with failure though, the other way you have to look at it in another context is, you know, with capacity type training, um, you have to be a bit more cautious about setting yourself up for failure. So again, you're trying to avoid failure uh, by, you know, with smart training, with smart preparation that is appropriate for your present level of ability and knowledge. So it's just like physical training, right? If your best back squat is 150 kilos, your program better not prescribe 200 kilos because you're going to fail. It's going to produce no useful adaptation. It's a stupid program. So in the same way, if you are trying to get tougher, you're trying to develop these abilities and develop the confidence that comes along with them, if every exercise you set up for yourself ends in failure because you you know, were uh, very poor at assessing yourself and developing an appropriate exercise, you know, what are you learning? You're learning that you are not capable of anything, right? You fail at everything. So you develop that sense of helplessness and, and uh, you know, lack of control versus setting these things up where yes, there is a risk of failure because you are intentionally pushing your boundaries to get better and better and better, but you're doing so in a more calculated manner. So you're, you're pushing that envelope just a little bit past where you're currently, you currently are. You're not tripling your ability, right? So if you say, well, 
you know, the longest I've hiked is two miles. So tomorrow I'm going to go out and I'm going to hike the entire, uh, you know, start hiking the entire Pacific Crest Trail. That's a bad plan. Uh, you know, you, you're you're jumping about 400 steps there, and you're essentially guaranteeing failure. Versus, I'm going to build up for the next couple of years, go longer and longer trips with less and less equipment. We just got an email about this. Yes. I don't know, did you read that? Oh, this? What, what quick <laughs> quick question on that is. Can't we fail and learn how to actually write these achievable goals? But is that where a mentor comes in, I suppose? Um, I think, man, like uh, uh, I made a quote on this when somebody asked me about like toughness and all this. And I just figured it was a whole bunch of like little non-quitting days put together. Like I've always figured if I just don't quit anything, I'll never lose. And eventually like I'll stay in the game. And like, you know, toughness was just a byproduct of just a whole bunch of little not quittings. And um, I used to watch people all the time, like, you know, do something big. Well, I suck at that. I'm not going to do it anymore. Whereas I would just keep doing it. And eventually, like, I just like toughness never really felt like something you had to cultivate. It just felt like I'll just do whatever it takes to win and not quit. And and, And then eventually, like growing up with older brothers, I just didn't like to fucking lose. And I realized that just not liking to lose and not giving up and just being and just persevering. People basically view that as toughness when I'm like, I don't know if that's toughness or just stupidity. And you have a good point about there because uh, I always love um, uh, some of the SEAL guys we worked with made a point like, hey, if you're going to be dumb, you better be hard kind of. And, and yeah. you, you had that in the book. Um, but I, like, is it really as complicated? Like, as you know, I read 200 and what is it, 200 and roughly 50 pages uh, like is toughness really as complicated as people make it out to be or do people just not know what the fuck it is so they just use a lot of cliches to describe it I, I think it's a little bit of both people certainly don't know what it truly is and if you don't know what it is how are you going to achieve it right um, and I do think that we have a tendency to overcomplicate things because that gives us a great excuse for not achieving them right so mm. if it were very straightforward uh we would have very little excuse for not doing it. And so if it's, it comes down to something like being persistent and just being so freaking obstinate that you're never going to quit. That's pretty easy to do, right? You just, you stand there over and over and say, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, That's too simple for people to come up with a good excuse to not do it. Right. Having said that uh, there is a lot more to it in my opinion. Um, And it, it comes down to, Again, like the first thing I talked about, that character element. If you don't have that under wraps, the rest of it is not going to work out. So you said, well, it was simple because I just, you know, I hated losing. Uh, I, I just decided I wasn't going to quit. But so you already had established that part of your character that there you had that value of not losing. Right. You wanted to be persistent. And so you kept after that. Not everyone has that. And, you know, like you said, nature versus nurture, we don't know if that was something that was inherent to you uh, or if it was something that was kind of imbued in you by growing up with older brothers, maybe your, you know, like your father, uh, your coaches, all that sort of thing. And it might have been the accumulation of a lot of little influences versus one big influence that is obvious. So that's the tricky part is, is it nature or nurture? Sometimes it's hard to tell because there may not be you know, some people have that one clear mentor, like they taught me X, Y, Z, and it's very obvious versus a lot of us go through life and we're just getting these little tiny pieces from a huge array of people and experiences 
um, that cumulatively create that effect. So we can't necessarily point our finger at, you know, this one thing taught me how to do this or that I should be this way. And so I think that's where more of the complication, the difficulty comes in. And so someone in that position is more likely to need a book saying, this is what's going on. This is how you need to actually approach this process step by step in a practical sense versus, you know, someone goes and reads a book about stoic philosophy and like, yeah, this sounds cool. I'm just going to be super stoic and hardcore, (laughs) but how do you do that? You know, don't maintain your composure. Don't be stressed. Well, I just got a scratch on my brand new car. I'm stressed out. Right. So it's, it's, it's more complicated than just reading Marcus Aurelius quotes and, and, you know, Epictetus and stuff and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm super hardcore and stoic now. Got it all you know, nailed down or, or just posting a bunch of Seneca stuff on your Instagram. Oh, goodness gracious, man. Uh, you, you know, um, I've said on this podcast before as a rhetoric major, I was a, you know, classics major. And so we read, you know, everybody from Cicero all the way back to the Stoics and everything in between to the cynics. And, you know, I mean, there was a whole progression of this thinking and, you know, Marcus Aurelius came many years after Seneca and those individuals and his, uh, you know, meditations. Like I thought it was great. Your journaling piece in here. But having read all that stuff, I mean, pretty amazing, uh, you know, to have that guy that developed of a thinker. But then if you go back and you look at his mentors and the teachers and the people that were influencing him over those years, it's pretty fascinating. But it's uh, it was something that I always enjoyed reading. And then as the Internet and especially social media got big, I just started seeing people butchering these quotes and putting them out there as like a modern stoic. And I'm like, all you're doing is reposting Seneca. Like, where's your, like, where's your, like, where's your stoicism today? If you're truly a stoic, what contributions are you making into that? And, uh, just, you know, and that the interesting thing about, uh, Marcus Aurelius in particular is, you, you know, you read meditations and you can see that it is truly a process for him, right? It wasn't just this thing that spontaneously materialized that he had all this stuff figured out. This was him writing notes to himself on how to think and how to behave, Right. Um, and so in that sense, to me, that shows that it's it's not this thing that we can instantly create, like just saying, I'm going to now embody this philosophy and then we're done. Uh, it's about determining, first of all, who do I need to be? Who do I want to be now? What you know, ways of thinking and what behaviors actually align with that and support that? Because having an idea of who we are doesn't mean anything if we don't have the corresponding behavior along with it, right? We can think that we're somebody and most of us do. uh, And the way we actually live is totally discordant with that, which is, you know, a whole nother can of worms and why so many of us have a lot of problems and, uh, you know, deep seated unhappiness because nothing fits together. Does that come from an absence almost like, um, uh, you know, like uh, the color black isn't necessarily a color. It's just the absence of light. And I sometimes think a lot of these things are similar within the character that there's this um, in the analogy. I mean, I don't really have a way to articulate it other than like, you know, black being the absence of light, not necessarily a color. There's an analogy that connects character in the same way where it's like it's not that you're characterless. It's just la- the, the way people are lacks character and, and like common understanding and just as kind of obtuse in a lot of ways. And I see people all the time with this kind of disingenuous nature. And I think it just goes back to a lack of character. Yeah. If you don't know who you are and what's meaningful to you, you're just kind of flailing around through life. Right. And you're, you're reaching for, um, 
things that kind of make sense superficially and like, oh, the stoicism thing sounds cool. Or no, now I want to go do this. Now I want to go do this. I like this guy. He's cool. And so you're, you're essentially just reaching out and finding things to mimic um, versus doing that difficult self-examination. And that's why people don't do it is because when you get down to it and you do some really honest self-assessment, especially early on, it's usually really disappointing and really discouraging because you recognize, hey, this person that I thought I was and that I pretend to be, that's not accurate, right? It is being disingenuous and, and having this sense that, oh, I'm this great person. I'm, I'm you know, uh, super uh, accomplished and, you know, I'm, I'm very composed and, and in, in control of myself. And no, you're not, you know, you're out there you know, screaming about missing a parking space um, while talking online about composure. Um, and so it's, it's that, that's why it has to be the first step in my opinion is to really get down and do that self-examination and set a course for that, right? This is who I'm striving to be. And now as hard as it might be, depending on our starting point, this is what I have to actually do to make that accurate, to make this true versus, you know, it's being someone versus pretending to be someone. And each, each chapter you provide action. So these steps for people to take to f- almost force them to take these hard looks at, e- at, at themselves. So t- talk about the importance of that action step. So it's not just becoming, it's not just reading this book. It's not just reading meditations. It's doing what Marcus did. Right. And that, I was, I was a little bit conflicted on that part of the book, honestly, because I've read a lot of books and the ones that have those little activities at the end of each chapter kind of just like intrinsically annoy me. I don't know why, but it just seems kind of silly. I'm like, I'm doing a a coloring workbook in elementary school or something. And usually I read in bed. So I'm like, I'm not going to go get a pen and start doing this right now. Like I want to go to sleep. Um, Well, how how many hours a day are you in bed? Like 18 hours a day? Like laying in bed, uh, just like on a big pillow? (laughs) uh, No, I wish, man. I've been an insomniac (laughs) since I was about 14, 15 years old. So I wish I could be in bed more but I read in bed for two hours when I go to bed every night. So um, I don't want to start getting more awake by freaking out and doing these exercises. But it, it came down to the fact that people can read these books and I, I'm very guilty of it myself. You read a book that is more philosophical in nature. Uh, and then there's this big gap between, even if you truly understand what you're reading, which a lot of us don't at least completely, um, you never follow that up with actually any kind of implementation, right? So I, I read, I read meditations. Uh, this is great stuff. Well, has your behavior changed at all? Are you living any differently now? And so I, I felt like there was a necessity to find a way, practical steps to close that gap, right? So now you understand what you want to do, what you need to do. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, step one through 10, how to actually do it. And whether or not everyone actually does that after reading the book is another question, but at least the steps are there uh, if they want to take advantage of it. And so it is um, very much a step-by-step process, again, starting with that character side of things and values and that sort of stuff and building into the more complex um, that rely on those things as a foundation. I mean, um, like if we take a step back and we talk on those heroic epics, every one of them starts with kind of like, uh, bravado, false bravado, um, ego, 
uh, becoming this, you know, like this, you know, and we'll use Beowulf, you know, this, you know, larger than life individual who becomes this, you know, uh, big ego. And then all of a sudden like the fall and then the hero's journey and this self-reflection, you become a better man. The idea of there's like, uh, you know, I was like glass and now I'm like iron kind of a deal. And that like, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, same thing, you know, you go through these trials and tribulations, ego, pride before the fall. And then the person comes back up. Um, is it something where like, uh, you know, you and, you know, 40, oh, how old are you? I mean, you're not 50, you're 40. I'll be 41 in a couple of weeks. Okay. So yes. Yeah, so, okay. So you're I, really, because I Robbie's almost 50, isn't he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, he's eight years older than me, I think. Oh, okay. All right. So, uh, you know, is this something where, you know, you as 40 plus, you know, uh, trials and tribulations, you know, uh, businesses here, I mean, you know, moves his whole life, you know, marriage, all these things allow you to have the almost the ability to look back and write this book opposed from like somebody in their 20s who, you know, and I think about myself in that regard, like the person I was when I was 25 and the ego and like, you know, the the way I thought that I could just kick the world off of the hinges at a moment's fucking notice. Um, and then all of a sudden you realize that that door is made of steel and fucking hits you way harder than you ever wanted. And then all of a yeah. sudden now you become a lot more focused. I'm wondering if like there's a, a time and point for a book like this where I read it and the, the lessons that I take from it opposed from when I was 25, if I read that book, I'd been like, man, that was a pretty good one. All right. You know, like, let me go on. So I wonder as yeah. I was reading it, I'm like, man, is this book so much more impactful at me at 43 years old? All of a sudden now here I am, uh, you know, as a parent and a dad in business and, you know, I'm in my second career. I've been playing the NFL and the trials and tribulations and the wins and losses there. Does that give me the, the perception, the depth to be able to read something like this and be like, wow, there's some really interesting pieces that I can connect to? Yeah, absolutely. And that experience is the uh, the foundation of perspective, right? And insight. You can sit in a room and read books all, all, all day long, your whole life, maybe in bed if you prefer. Um, but having the actual life experiences and having really varied experiences, like you said, you know, multiple careers, uh, you know, being that young guy who thinks he can beat the shit out of the world versus being a father, um, Especially you have daughters, right? So uh, yeah, that's a whole nother, I got whole other thing. Twin girls and a little boy, so I got three. Yeah. So and I have a daughter too. So it, you, it's really the I think the varied collection of experiences uh, and the challenges, the, the various uh, types of adversity. Um, people can go either way. You know, they can kind of tighten up and and be resistant to those lessons and being unwilling to see what they need to see. Right. And so that was me early on in life is just getting angrier and angrier. Right. With it, with every year, um, it, it was more like, this is stupid. Fuck everybody. I'm just going to go over here and, and just get harder. Uh, and then as you actually grow up, you you learn that that is the most counterproductive thing you can do. Right. And you start actually accepting uh, you know, the lessons that these experiences have to teach you, even retroactively, right? You don't necessarily learn them in the moment. Uh, and a lot of us in our younger life, especially us guys who are very hard headed, um, it, it takes us maybe some, some distance from them to really understand uh, the salient points and how that all fits together. And so, yeah, if, if I had read this book at age 19 or 20, I might've been, 
not quite so interested uh, because I wasn't at that point where I would have been willing, I think, to understand that it wasn't just about gritting your teeth, furrowing your brow and, and uh, you know, just having a bare walled room and a tightly made bed and just depriving yourself of all possible uh, pleasure. And that was the only way to be tough. And that, you know, really that makes no sense in the long term. You're not producing anything. You're not contributing anything. Um, and you're not gaining anything from it. It's just self-abuse, you know, as a pretext for calling yourself tough. In other words, it's about an appearance versus about substance and, and experience and actually deriving something out of life. There were sects of uh, philosophers um, that were, you know, established around the type, uh, time of the Stoics and also the, the, the Cynics and all these other groups. And there were some that actually subscribed to that model. That the idea that enlightenment came through, and this is, you know, probably same with, uh, um, you know, the monks in Tibet. Like there, there's yeah. some like uh, something can be valued by putting yourself in those situations and having no possessions and renouncing everything and sleeping on on hard floors and wearing shoes and begging and, you know, eating whatever you can. And uh, right. I, I always loved that there was like you know, those type of individuals that thought that there was something to be learned from physical suffering and there was enlightenment through that. And then there was others that came from, you know, you know, the ideas like of, uh, you know, the Stoics where, you know, argue not about what a good man is, just be a good man kind of a deal. You know, everybody knows what's right. good and bad. Why are we fucking wasting time arguing about this? And uh, like that was the lesson that I took from reading that stuff years ago was, um, you know, why are we arguing nuance? And I think this is what's so fascinating, especially in our deal um, at least what I took in, you know, for meditations was everybody gets lost within the daily minutia and why are we here? What's the bigger purpose? You know, what really makes us happy? We're here for, uh, you know, what is it? The country song, uh, we're here for a short time. So we're here, you know, let's be better be a good time kind of a deal. Right. And you know, the fact that we allow ourselves to be unhappy, not based upon the fact that we're living, but because of the things that are happening to us within the moment. And uh, that was like the perspective I looked at, like, you know, uh, you know, don't fucking smash the chessboard because you make one bad move kind of a deal. Right. Yeah. And, and there's there's a big difference between, um, you know, people who are seeking enlightenment through the denial of any kind of earthly pleasure or experience. Right. And if that's your thing, then by all means, go for it. But to me, that makes no sense. Uh, you're here, you know, use it, enjoy it um, in in you know, everyone has to find their own meaning. There's no ultimate meaning and purpose for each of us, I don't think. Um, and it's it's that lack of, of, of purpose and meaning that keeps everybody so unhappy all the time and, and doing all these ridiculous things. Again, the meaningless competition and one-upmanship and, and you know, uh, seeking validation. When you can figure out what is actually significant and meaningful to you, all that stuff just disappears and you are just focused on What's important to me? What's important, uh, you know, to make this experience worthwhile? But also, uh, I, I think you more naturally understand that it's important to be a contributor to the world. Like you are a part of a community at every scale, from your own family to the neighborhood to the the country to the world, versus this little isolated thing in time and space that is consumed only with self-interest right? Where every decision you make is just all about what is best for me right now, regardless of how it affects everybody else. Um, and certainly there has to be some degree of self-interest in the sense that uh, 
we have to preserve our own lives um, as much as is reasonable, right? You can't help anybody if you're dead, uh, at least not in a practical sense. Uh, and so I think that that kind of ties things together. And that was one of the points I've tried to make in the book is that there's more to this stuff than just being the tough guy so everyone can look at you. It's more about how can I be more engaged with my own life, but also with the people around me, right? How do I become a better father, a better better son, a better brother, um, you know, just a better part of the world? And, you know, each of our individual choices has some effect, even if it's immeasurably small in the moment, on the state of the world, right? Each of us, the way we behave, the way we interact with each other is determining the state of the world, the course of the world. And I think that's a responsibility we have to all take seriously um, and not trivialize it at all and, and not ignore it, certainly. And you mentioned character comes first, and I like this capability is second. Where did the order come for the rest of these? Capability, capacity, and commitment following character. Uh, well, again, you know, that, that character and, and knowing who you are, knowing what you value is the foundation for the rest of them. So you, you have to get that done first. And I shouldn't say done. You have to get that started first, right? You're not necessarily going to nail this down in the next two weeks. Hey, uh, um, uh, and your character. Greg, um, so, dude, that's actually a great point. Uh, and and some, something I'm, and I'm, as I'm reading my notes is how do you build character? Like, I'm, I'm, I know that's kind of a, a weird kind of point, but like, if it's the foundation, uh, like how does somebody, I mean, fuck, like this is kind of a weird piece, but, uh, like I can tell people's character based upon my, my interactions with them, but like, mm -hmm. does it take self, uh, self-reflection, self-discovery to look and be like, I'm a fucking piece of shit. Or is it something yeah. where you look and you're like, oh, well, you know, like I always uh, I always think it's funny. The people that seem to be the lowest moral character are the people that blame everybody else for their biggest problems. You know, oh, if only this, you know, and, and, I, and <laughs> right. I know we've met people like that. I'm just wondering, like, how does somebody do that character work? I mean, if that's the foundation for this in terms of building toughness, is it something uh, like and, and I also wonder, is there some protective mechanism with, within us that allows us, our id, to, you know, prevents us from actually looking deep in the mirror and being like, you know what, I'm a bad fucking person, but I'm going to change. Yeah, and I think that is something that a lot of us have to be reminded of. Like, you are, your character, who you are, is not this weird, immutable quality, you know, like your eye color. It's not, you're not just stuck with it. Um, you can make a choice to change the way you behave, the way you think, the way that you, you experience things. Um, and it, but it does, it requires that self-examination, that reflection, and it, it requires that willingness to do these difficult things and potentially fail and be embarrassed and be frustrated and disappointed. Uh, but in order to do that, you have to have a landmark, right? You have to have something on that map that's going to guide your decisions uh, in, in terms of developing that behavior. So that's where determining who do I want to be, right? That's step one. Who is, who am I striving to be? Who would, uh, you know, this person who I want to be, how, you know, how would I find what would make me satisfied with myself? So I don't have to look in the mirror and say, Oh my God, I'm a piece of shit. Uh, despite what we might say publicly, because that having that ice, that sense of identity is how we can say, you know, in the moment is what I'm doing and saying right now, you know, reflecting who I want to be. 
I'm over here, you know, chewing this guy out because he took an extra 30 seconds making my coffee this morning. Uh, is that the person I want to be? I tell myself I want to be this composed, rational person. That's pretty far from composure, and it's definitely not reasonable. Um, so it, it is it, that step. First step is recognizing that we have that that ability to determine who we are. That it's not this fixed thing that we're stuck with. Because if it is, then none of this has any point. You shouldn't read the book, right? You're just going to go along and, and do whatever you do, and then blame somebody else. Uh, and that's a big thing I talk about in there too. Is that sense of responsibility? You know, we are each responsible for the course of our life. Um, and th this fatalism and, and determinism stuff that people talk about drives me nuts, right? Well, this is just how it is, so I'm just going to deal with it. Well, why bother? You know what I mean? Like, what's the point of that? What are you What are you doing here uh, if that's the case? Uh, you just are going to be miserable for the rest of your life because someone else didn't, you know, put something in your lap for you. Your, your dad didn't give you $250 million of seed money uh, and, and help you become a billionaire. Uh, you know, cause again, if that's the case, then why, why I get up in the morning, there's really no point. You're not going to experience anything meaningful because it's not going to actually, you know, give you any kind of inspiration for change. It's not going to give you any insight. And if it did, what would you do with it? Um, so determining who you want to be, and that's going to be that landmark on the map that guides you in that direction in terms of determining your behavior and your way of thinking. Uh, so that's, it has to be step one for anything else you do. As people, man, and, and this is kind of an interesting piece. If, um, it, like that, I, I wonder if that attitude is more prevalent now than it used to be. Like I was kind of thinking like, like when, when we were growing up, like, uh, you know, and I, I fucking hate this because the world has changed dramatically. Like there was no social media. Um, you know, you wanted to learn to Olympic weightlift. You had to physically call somebody on the phone and go over to their house and learn how to do it. And we, it kind of forced you to reach out. Whereas now there's so much input, there's so much information coming at you. And what's pretty interesting on, and I had this realization on social media, you know, kind of recently. And the analogy I gave is, uh, you know, let's say you're going to cut a pie and you fuck up every cut until you find your one perfect cut. And that's the one you show on social media. You don't show the broken crust and the rest of the fucked up pie. And what I think all too often is when you see this, you have people that are, you know, young trials and tribulations trying to figure it out. And their view of the world is everybody's perfect piece of the pie. And that feeling of failure where um, I didn't know anybody that played in the NFL. My older brothers played football. I didn't know anybody. So it wasn't anything that I was trying to attain. It just felt like as long as I don't quit, I'm going to get a scholarship. As long as I don't quit and I keep training, I'll just get where I go. And then, you know, once I got there, I just didn't want to lose. And so I, yeah. I always kind of am glad that I didn't necessarily know anybody, that there was nothing to emulate and that I was just kind of out there figuring it the fuck out. And I, I worry sometimes you know, and Derek Woodsky talked about this, like first time he ever went and lifted weights, what did he squat like 420? Yeah. And he, uh, he was just, from, you know, farm kid from Canada, went to some county fair. They had this squat thing. He just started squatting and squatted 420 pounds for the first time he'd ever lifted weights. And I, I love the story because he's like, we didn't know what strong was. We didn't necessarily know yeah. that was heavy. We just loaded it up and did it. And he goes, I, I, I'm, I'm always thankful for that because if I had seen how, like people struggled with 225, whatever. I goes, I wonder if that had given me a mental block where if I was going in there, I had an expectation. Right. Uh, there is absolutely a, a huge lack of hard work and sense of responsibility. 
and part of it is social media and, and the, the, the ability simply to have everything at our fingertips, right? I can sit on my couch and I can order food. I can get entertainment. I can order anything I need delivered to my door. I don't even have to get up. Uh, you know, like you said, when we were growing up, if you wanted something, you had to actually get off your ass. I had to, you know, push my damn skateboard six miles over a gravelly road to go get whatever I was getting. Uh, I had to work for that money to get it in the first place. And I think more and more as we go, there's less of a clear connection between our hard work and our decisions versus the outcome, right? So we, we have this sense of entitlement where we just expect things to be available to us and accessible to us. Um, and that, that creates that attitude where, you know, I'm sure you get it as much as I do, people messaging you and saying, uh, you know, do you have an article on this? I was like, well, yeah, it's on the website that has a search function that you could have found that article and already have read it by the time I've responded to you. Sure. And it's just such this bizarre um, mindset and attitude where it's like, there's this complete unwillingness to do anything difficult. We spend all this time and energy finding ways to avoid anything difficult. Uh, and it's like, well, if you just put that time and energy into doing the difficult thing, it would already be done and you would have gotten a lot out of it. And so I think we have this very skewed perspective on what difficulty is, right? You have people balking at like the most ridiculous minor inconveniences as if they're these epic obstacles uh, to success versus you, know, you go back to, to well beyond our childhood. And it's like the kind of problems that we're dealing with now in most cases in our daily life are just absurdly minor. Um, and yet they're eliciting the same kind of reactions that I imagine people had, uh, you know, many generations ago of like, I don't have any food. I need to go figure out how to find something to eat versus like, oh man, Uber Eats is going to take an extra five minutes tonight. Like that's like an equivalent uh, sense of hardship uh, in those two eras, it seems like. And that's a major problem. Well, what, what I'm a little nervous about and... This is where I kind of rely on what I like to believe is is just humanity, is that if all of a sudden everything was taken from us, who would persevere? Like, for example, if all of a sudden an EMP hit and, you know, this thing clicks off and there is no Internet, there is no way to contact anybody. All of a sudden, how quickly could people go back and how how, how quickly could they uh, turn the clock back and actually be like, OK, we got to get something to eat. I'm going to have to go kill one of these deer out here. Uh, I'm going right. to have to go out and do this. Okay. Hey, like, uh, you know, the water's not flowing from the water plant. How do I, I guess I got to go to the Creek and I got to get water. Like how quickly could people, or more importantly, would people just curl up and die because they, they didn't have the toughness of the wherewithal to be like, all right, this is just another added inconvenience and I can figure these skills out. Yeah. There would definitely be a very clear uh, line of demarcation between those two groups. Uh, some people would curl up in the fetal position, suck their thumbs and die of exposure and starvation eventually. But um, that is part of what I talk about too, is, is having that sense of responsibility and that curiosity, that interest of developing those skills. So that comes back to the capability thing. If we lose all this stuff and suddenly we're exposed and we're vulnerable the more tools we have, the more experience we have, the more able we are immediately to take care of ourselves. And we have the not just the willingness, but the desire to do so, right? We're not going to sit around and be like, well, somebody will come and help me. 
We're going to say, well, somebody might come and help me eventually. But in the meantime, I got stuff to do. I got to go get busy finding water, treating water, finding food, butchering this deer, uh, you know, figuring out how I'm going to get something else. So I'm not, I don't have rabbit starvation from only eating, you know, uh, lean meat. And again, the more knowledge you have, the more experience you have, the more prepared you are for something extreme like that versus someone who doesn't even know where their food comes from, has absolutely no clue about how to find food, prepare food, or even get water. Um, they might go down to that local creek and drink water without treating it. And now all of a sudden uh, they're dying of dehydration because they've had massive diarrhea for three days, um, you know, from Giardia or you know, whatever pathogens they consumed. So the, the fact that, um, we do have so many conveniences. It's not, it doesn't force us to not be prepared and have those tools. It's a choice we can make. So I talked about, uh, you know, with Rob Wolf the other day about this sort of thing is we can have all this great stuff and we can take advantage of it and exploit it. And, and so much of it has so much benefit for us individually and collectively, but we have to be conscious of the potential drawbacks and we have to make choices in our lives to work around those things. And so that's like you said, I'm going to learn how to weld and fabricate. Well, do you have to? No, of course you don't have to. You want to. And so one of these days you're going to run into a problem. You're like, yeah, I can fix that. You know, I have the solution because I have that, maybe not this exact experience in the same situation. It's a novel experience, but I have these tools from unrelated experiences that I can now put to use here. Oh yeah, when the end of the world comes, I can totally fabricate uh, like those monster trucks from uh, Mad Max. Uh, yeah, from Mad Max. Exactly. Oh yeah, hand, hands down, bring them over. We already got trucks, diesel motors, Fix things that, that don't uh, even need uh, EMPs. Uh, EMPs. Set up that harness for the guitar player on the front of the truck. And uh, I actually told to Rob that's his job, so we'll just take his yeah. eyes and he'll play. Well, on he's got to be shirtless. <laughs> I think he's fine. Yeah, he's good. Is uh, what's kind of amazing and like like the thought that I keep having is, I mean, if is this something like a uh, hundred years ago, you went and talked to people about toughness. If it was something that was just inherent within them, like, yeah, no, this is what we do. We get up and we go out and we got to, you know, pull rocks from the field and we got to do this. And, you know, there, there was just so much more effort put forth to just survive that people had to have an inherent toughness. And that what yeah. we're seeing today is that the, the death of toughness is convenience and access. Ooh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you. I mean, you go back even to our, you know, grandparents' generation. Uh, you know, both my grandfathers grew up on farms, uh, and there's a, a totally different mindset you have from. Yeah, I got to get up in the dark to go start working, uh, and then I'm going to be working really late at night. I got stuff that just has to happen. And there's no way of making it happen without my work and my willingness to do that. And I don't think it was probably something they thought about like, huh, I wonder if I can go look up uh, any books and to show me how to do this better and to have a better mindset about doing hard work. Like you said, it's just this thing that was an inherent part of life. And you go even further back from that and that's more and more the case. And so, yes, we, the, the, the greater the distance we have from um, individually being responsible for the things that support life, the more difficult it is for us to understand the necessity and the benefit of it. Right. So if you've never had to, um, you know, do anything more difficult than, than 
typing in uh, some instructions for a guy to go pick up your food for you, then the, the mere idea of having to go hunt or forage is you don't, you don't even have any ability to understand it. Right. And that's the kind of person you drop them off in the forest and they just sit down and that's it. They just sit down and die of exposure in the next eight hours. Right. Versus someone else who, who potentially grew up or, or made the choice uh, to develop that, that sense of agency and that responsibility, they're going to sit down and, and figure out, okay, what are my priorities? Right. I got to come up with some kind of shelter right now to avoid exposure. I got to find some water. I know how to treat it. Um, and then if I'm out here long enough, I'm going to have to find some food, right? How am I going to signal and try to find someone to rescue me? Or can I find my way out without a compass, right? Do I know basic land navigation techniques, whatever the case is. Um, and that's the kind of mindset that I think more of us, if not all of us really need to uh, cultivate. And it does at this point, yes, we have to actively cultivate it because it's not going to be naturally imbued in us because we're not growing up on a farm. We're not growing up out, uh, you know, in some self-sustaining homestead in most cases. And if we are, we're probably not watching this podcast and reading this book, right? We're just living our lives uh, in the way that has already taught us most of these lessons. In these lessons, and we're using the extremes of we got to find forage our own food. We got to find our own water supply, et cetera. But this book stands and is in a position to teach and educate others to educate their kids or to take actions within their community. I mean, even getting out of kids, getting out of college, they got to freaking suck for one, two, three years at something. This is encouraging them on how to take an interest, take an action. But are people okay with that? Like, I, I, like, I don't know. There are plenty of people out there that are okay with it. And we're finding them with our block one yeah. network. Well, that's for sure. But it's like the Dave Grohl thing. You remember, uh, you know, like, uh, he was made a great point talking about like American idols, not how you become a rock star. Like that's one element, like you and your buddies get some instruments, you play in the garage and you suck and you suck long enough until you become Nirvana. And I, I always thought that that was a pretty good analogy and we used it, but I like, are people okay? Like, so this is kind of where I think about it. Like, uh, because we might not have had as much access to the rest of the world. Uh, I just assumed everybody sucked. I assumed I like, I didn't know how strong people were. And then I remember I went to Zangus's and these dudes were like squatting 800 pounds, but they were all grown men. And I was like, well, I guess that's how strong you'll be when you're that age. Like I didn't right. know that there were kids my age who were stronger. We just figured like, well, I just keep doing this and eventually I'll be able to do that too. So I, I wonder if the, image that people that perfect piece of pie that everybody's pushing out like oh here's this 15 year old kid who made a you know a million dollars you know with GameStop off of fucking reddit and now all of a sudden all these other 15 year old kids are like i'm a piece of shit i'm gonna kill myself uh i do got right. a reddit uh a reddit GameStop story so my buddy up in boston had another friend of him and he grew up in southie all his friends are tradesmen so electricians plumbers and all that good stuff one dude sold his house and then put 80k in when GameStop was at 300 bucks, so it shot up for a, a peak, and then that freaking rocket fell to earth. Yeah. So he's tradesman had some money from his house and aimed to just make it big so he could actually have a retirement. And got crushed. That dude is never not going to work for the rest of his life. But yeah, brutal. Well, I mean, but that's uh, like when whenever people ask me that, I'm like, I don't trade stocks. Like uh, the amount of time that I would have to invest to be proficient where I felt comfortable doing that. 
Yeah. I don't, I dude, that's time invested in other things. And so I, I, I just always, bury my money in my backyard. Yeah. It's easier just to stuff it in the mattress. But, uh, <laughs> like, yeah. but that's like, ah, fuck man. Like, I just wonder if, um, like a book like this and, and dude, and I, I thought it was super impactful. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, you know, I wonder if the people that are going to read it aren't necessarily the ones that are, that need it is most, that or, or is it something that I've gone through and highlighted the shit out of? And now all of a sudden when I go meet some kid, I'm like, you need to read this fucking book and all the shit I highlighted. <laughs> but that's, that's well, my point. This, this is an opportunity, Greg, that you've articulated very well for now fathers, uncles, brothers to educate others and then give these action steps for people to take versus the, the cliche, hey, just be tough. Get up. Right. No, it's yeah. do this. Try this. Well, the, um, even when I was reading the character piece, I talked to my daughters last night. I'm like, do you know what good character is? And they're, they're nine, yeah. and they're like, no, what's character? And so we got into a deep talk, and I'm like, you know, um, uh, doing what you say you're going to do. So if you tell me that you're going to you know, clean your room or fold your laundry or do your homework with this and you don't do it, do you think that's, big, that's good character or not? And they were like, uh, I'm like, well, that would mean that you're being dishonest. And it's hard to have good character if you're dishonest. Uh, right. When we send you to school, when you show your teachers respect, um, when you listen and you do the work and you invest the time to, you know, to absorb this and make it meaningful, do you think that's a, something that is reflective of good character? And we went through all these different character things, like treating your little brother with respect, you know, like um, my daughter just played in uh, she plays basketball and they had their championship game. And there was one girl on the other team who absolutely fucking just dominated everybody. Like I've never in my life seen this one person other than maybe Tom Brady, like dominate yeah. like that. This girl absolutely like intimidated the whole team this. And so after the game, she comes over and goes to shake my daughter's hand. And is like, hey, good job. And my daughter was so mad, she like just folded her arms and I like got on her. I was like, always shake your opponent's hand. Even in defeat, you have to be gracious. That's good character. And I was like, I played with guys who I absolutely hated playing against them. But at the end of the game, you shake their hand, not because you like them, but out of respect for that, they showed up and they did their job. And so like going through and talking about, and so it, it was, uh, it was a good catalyst. It was an excellent catalyst for me reading the chapter on character and then having, uh, hopefully a nuanced discussion. And I always, as I get done with these discussions with my kids, I'm like, God, that was so great. And I'm thinking they're probably like this fucking old man, just yapping on about this character thing. Um, but like yeah, having a nuanced you know what, discussion. Though, yeah. Even, even if they think that in the moment, which I, I doubt they did, that's the kind of thing that they're going to return to when they're a little bit older. Like that stuff gets into their heads. Right. Um, and I think it's the kind of thing where even if they can't totally understand it at the same level you do, which they very likely at age nine do not, uh, they understand the most fundamental points well enough. And sometimes it just takes making the actual behavior happen versus totally understanding it conceptually. Like, you're going to go shake that girl's hand and show her some respect. Even if they're not quite clear on the philosophy behind it, they, they develop those habits and that kind of builds the philosophy from the opposite direction. Um, and I, I do think that, yes, it's always an issue of, you know, anything you put out is, is this going to get to the audience who truly needs it? Right. And the, the answer is usually no, not entirely. Um, but you look at something like the Flynn effect, which is basically like the, the, the global increase of IQ 
uh, that's driven by the global increase of IQ, right? It has this knock-on effect around everyone else. And so the way I look at it is each of us has some degree of influence on the people around us, no matter how small, some of it really big, you know, someone like you or me who has a larger audience, we influence more people than the average person, but all of us, no matter what, even if it's within our own family, our own kids or whatever, um, what we do, what we believe affects other people. And in that way, even if someone doesn't necessarily have access to that book or any interest in it, they may be exposed to the ideas, you know, indirectly from other people who are reading that book or and trying to take advantage of those ideas. So that, that kind of collectively, we have that positive forward motion, even if not every single person on earth is reading that book, which they should. So how do you, um, if capacity was the third piece, and that comes down to like how much you're able to withstand. How does somebody increase their capacity? I mean, you know, we talk about it in like a training kind of uh, uh, like the vein of training, like, hey, like um, I'm going to, you know, I hate to use the term GPP, but um, if somebody wants to. <laughs> That's been ruined, but yeah. Oh, God damn it. Talk about curb stomping a really good uh, Zadiskorsky, um, you know, Verkashansky, uh, you know, piece <laughs> and just. Painting with peanut butter and fucking setting it on fire, you know, um, but like that idea of like increasing your capacity to not only do more work, but uh, absorb more, do more and just expand, uh, you know, whether it be physical, mental, emotional capacity, like personally, like when I think about capacity. I always think about it and, you know, and people talk about it in training, but I think about emotional capacity. Uh, I didn't know what emotional capacity was until I had twin girls. And all of a sudden I went from like, you know, my wife and I, and like we're dating and we get married and the whole deal. And you're kind of like in this deal. And now all of a sudden we add these two helpless little human things that I have to take care of. And like, I didn't understand what emotional capacity was until going through that. And so, yeah. Like no book I could have read. And I read all these like, you know, strong father, strong daughter and all these like, you know, parenting books, like nothing prepares you like the situation. You know, I, I like I tried to read and was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm educated. I'm going to read this stuff. I'll get a jump. No, until you get in the fight, you don't know what you have. And so I think right. about like, uh, you know, and I, and I know you, you know, you've done jits and, and a fighter like I have. And like, it's kind of like. Um, until you actually get in the ring and you start going for three minute rounds to know how far your capacity and you're thinking, man, I'm three rounds in, how the hell am I going to go eight? How am I going to go 10? But then right. you expand that. So how do we develop? Well, you I mean, you nailed it right there with, with the being in the situation, the experience that's key. And so there's kind of two parts to it is first and foremost, having that mindset where you are not only willing to deal with challenges, hardship, adversity, um, but eager to. And I don't mean eager to in the sense like you have some unhealthy uh, enjoyment of displeasure and discomfort and suffering, um, but eager in the sense that you recognize that those things are opportunities to develop and become stronger, become better, become more intelligent. Uh, you know, all these qualities that we want to, to develop and, and progress with. So that's number one, is that rather than feeling like you are being saddled with a burden, that you are a victim of your own life, that you accept the objective reality, this is what's happening. I don't necessarily like it, but it is what's happening. So rather than cower away from it and just be miserable and complain, 
I'm going to exploit it in any possible way I can. What can I learn from this? How can I use this as an opportunity? Um, and then it goes into, you know, intentionally creating experiences for yourself. And this goes back to what I was talking about with failure earlier uh, and, and not just beating yourself to death to kind of as a, as a continual way of testing your present abilities, you have to develop those abilities. And so finding what are my weak points, and it is really just like training, what are my weak points and what are the ways I can develop those, not necessarily into strengths, but how can I reduce those weaknesses? How can I mitigate the problems of that weakness and as a whole become better, stronger, more intelligent, whatever. Um, and so there, there absolutely needs to be intentional, uh, you know, training. And it's not just the, you know, your, your big stress exposure training type things. It's not just, I'm going to go climb a mountain sort of adventures. It comes down to everyday things with having self-awareness to recognize that you are, you know, reacting emotionally in some ridiculous way to a simple inconvenience and taking a step back and saying, how can I respond to this better in a way that is productive and constructive versus self-destructive? Uh, and, and it's is within all those little things day to day where you get the practice and you, you turn that um, thing that is it, it's requiring you to be conscious and, and actively do it into something that happens more naturally, right? It actually goes from acting like who you want to be to being who you are. pretty powerful no, uh, it got it's quiet over there no no I'm, i mean it's uh <laughs> like i mean it's um so like i i think all too often with a lot of stuff when you start reading this and and this is something that i i i learned years ago with not only reading information like this but also uh like looking and doing this deeper self-work is that if you don't have a breadth of experience it's really hard to relate to this stuff so like uh you know me me reading seneca or marcus aurelius meditations whatever when i was 20, 21 years old was a dramatically different experience than me reading it at like 40. And like, right. you know, like having not gone through the trials and tribulations and then understanding who Marcus Aurelius was and, you know, how he was raised and the, you know, where he was, especially in that point of his life. And like, you know, the journaling piece and like him trying to figure this thing out. And uh, it's, it's just, it's so impactful because you have to have a counterpoint. You have to have experience to read this stuff and understand it. Like you have to have wins and losses and failures and wins lost and, you know, love lost and love won and all these other things to really understand. And I think so many times people want to like read something like this and be like, well, I'm just going to do what the book says. Well, uh, the book's only <laughs> impactful if I have some form of like counterpoint when I can read it and then relate it to something personal in my life. Um, like you were talking about, you know, the world's best athletes, do they have to tell you that they're the world's best athletes sometimes, but is that bravado? I mean, did Jordan have to tell everybody he was good? No. But if somebody asked him, he'd tell you exactly how good he was, you know, and then there's, there's other he's people. He's just being honest though. Yeah. Yeah. He's not out there bullshitting people. He wasn't like, inflating. Yeah. No, he was legitimately the best to do his job. Um, so like, right. I wonder all too, too often if the. And to take it back, like the age old, um, you know, fail more, it should be re kind of calibrated to if you want to have personal growth, you have to have more experience. You have to go out and win and lose and fight and, and you know, uh, you know, 
taste your own blood. I mean, all, all these different analogies to really have the, the breadth of knowledge to pull from to read something like this and have perspective. And um, the, uh, what, what keeps popping up in my mind is uh, we went to an event and I'm not going to mention the guy, but, you know, the guy uh, runs a big company, but yet was real big into the plant-based medicine. And I'm going to go down to South America and do all these ayahuasca trips and like, you know, learn all this <laughs> stuff about me. And I, um, I thought it was a tactic by people that had never really done shit to try to have experience. And I'm like, if you really are trying to analyze yourself from a deep state, like, wouldn't you be able to do the self-reflective work in this plane and not in some form of like induced plane? Yeah. Speaking as someone who did, uh, an absolutely medically absurd amount of acid and mushrooms as a young man, I'm with you. Uh, (laughs) if you are, if you're, if you're simply trying to understand yourself from within the constraints of yourself, you're extremely limited in what you can achieve. And you're absolutely right. You have to get that experience because you have to be exposed, uh, to those challenges, to those difficulties, uh, it, because though that's what makes you question and have to reevaluate what you think and how you act and how you respond to things, right? If, if you can read a book about climbing a mountain, that's very different from climbing the mountain. Like no matter how well that author communicates his experience, um, you are not getting that experience, and you learn things from that. In the, in the process itself, you know, contemporaneously, but also in retrospect. And then you have those collections of experiences that are then used in future experiences to look back and you find the patterns, you find, um, you know, what works for you, what doesn't work for you, what everybody seems to do, what no one seems to do. And, you know, without that stuff, you, you just can't, like you said, you cannot understand. I mean, you're talking about reading all these books and Aurelius and stuff as a younger. I remember reading Nietzsche when I was like 18, 19. Me too. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, yeah, this is cool. I think I don't really know what's going on, but, uh, and you know, you look at that stuff now and it's like, it's a completely different experience, right? Because of all the things I've learned and done since that first time. So, yeah, I was big into the uh, existential deal in college and especially like uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment and, you know, the idea of like the Superman theory that there's people that are, you know, destined for greatness. And I bought into a lot of that shit early on. But I, um, yeah, that was a, there was a time where that stuff was very, very prevalent and it was easy to buy into. But then all of a sudden you look back and you read and you're like, "Uh, I don't know if I'm as, as sold on this information as I might have been 20 years ago. Right. You know, at, yeah. at the time it was like, you know, uh, you know, what, what was the Nietzsche one? All right. I'm, He's dude, got some great one liners. So you'll yeah, think of no, it as soon as we're done here. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> dude, it's uh, the fourth point commitment. So what are you willing to do? I think is, is the next point I wanted to get to. And I think that's an interesting point because after you've gone through and you've established your character, you've, you've developed the capacity and the, the, you know, you're capable. Now you have to find something to commit to necessarily test it. Yeah. And this, this is what comes down. This is the action side of things. What are you actually doing? So we can have these first three things and, and, uh, you know, believe we are someone, but without actually doing the things that support that identity and that utilize the, the, the capability and capacity for meaningful accomplishments, it's just kind of a private fantasy. It's, it's more self-deception than anything else. So, 
if you say I am such and such, but the way you behave does not reflect that you are not that thing. You are not that person, no matter how much, you know, you look in the mirror and you tell yourself that it is not true. And so that commitment side of thing encompasses everything from, you know, discipline and, and lifestyle and, and, you know, habit and routine um, to the willingness to do the things that support what we believe in. Right. And that can be the, the most minor things day to day. Like you said, you're talking about with your daughters is, uh, you know, if you say you're going to do something, are you going to do it or not um, to the most extreme? Like if you are in some dire situation, are you willing to truly do what is necessary to save yourself, to save others, knowing that you are potentially um, going to incur harm and or death? Right. So it, you, you have this very broad um, spectrum of experiences and demands within that commitment umbrella. Um, but without that, the rest of the stuff is largely meaningless. So, I mean, how does somebody evaluate that? I mean, uh, like you made a good point, like people look in the mirror and, uh, you know, and we, we find this all too often, like the, uh, the, you know, like how people view themselves is not necessarily how the world is viewing them. And I think that's where kind of the dangerous piece of like, Hey, I hear what you're saying, but nothing that you're doing is leading me to believe that you're this person. (laughs) So you're either playing a great deception or you've just fooled a lot of people into thinking by using a bunch of fancy words. But you know, if it comes down to it, like I I think what's fascinating on all this and where I get stuck is like all this information and all these pieces take some form of self, uh, self-reflection, some realization for you to be honest and look and be like, okay, we know what good character is. Do I have good character? And then more importantly, what are the pieces that I have to put in place to, to necessarily strengthen my character? And then do I have the people around me that'll keep me, uh, you know, on task. Like I think all two times when people are of low moral character, what they do is they, it's like cockroaches to light. Like they want to like go to the seediest, darkest places. They want to find people like them because they don't want that light shined on them for who they are. And then, you know, you get into something like, uh, like, are you capable, right? Can you look in the mirror and be like, I'm capable of the tasks at hand. Um, okay. Well, what are they? And have you ever executed them? No. then you need to go out and you need to necessarily test yourself. Like if I tell you, you know, I'm I'm capable of squatting a thousand pounds and you're like, okay, you're capable of it. Have you squatted a thousand? No, I haven't. Okay. Then how do you know you're capable? Well, I did all this work. But I believe I can. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It, it Again, it's that experience component, right? And that is how you assess your commitment. That is how you assess your capability. Um, and you make the perfect point with capability in particular is, is a lot of us will go through life very uh, carefully avoiding any situation that could potentially expose our incapability, right? And even going so far as creating this public persona of someone who is remarkably capable. Like I, I have all these skills and this ability and this willingness to do these things yet. I've never actually demonstrated that in real life. Right. Again, that's just that private fantasy of propping up your own ego um, because you're unwilling to accept the fact that you are absolutely nowhere near that person that you are pretending to be. And so you, you really can't know what your true, true commitment is without those experiences that are testing it. And we can't always, you can't create certain tests, right? You can't create life and death scenarios intentionally, at least not properly. And you probably shouldn't, um, you know, you can get yourself into dangerous situations, certainly, 
but you're not going to go invite a potentially lethal attack from a strange criminal on the street, right? Uh, just to see what you're willing to do. Um, that's more of kind of an unhealthy sort of approach to the testing side of things, or it, it is a, a, a huge, you know, unhealthy level of insecurity where you constantly, you're the guy who has to go pick fights to be reassured that you have the ability um, versus kind of allowing those things to occur more naturally. And then having that willingness to do the self-assessment afterwards, right? Did I actually do what I believe I'm capable of doing what I'm willing to do? And then, you know, your day-to-day -day life, right? That comes down to the, again, habits, routine, discipline, that sort of thing is, are you actually doing what is required to be the person that you say you are or want to be. And the athletic realm is the perfect example of that is people will say, oh, I am an elite athlete or I want to be an elite athlete. And yet they won't do all those things outside of the gym that are required to be elite or remain elite, right? They, they're willing to go in and train for two hours a day, but that's the easy part. You know that as well as I do, right? That's the easiest part of that situation. Um, it's, you know, having that, solid sleep schedule, having the ability to uh, manage and minimize stressors, you know, having your nutrition dialed in, all these things, the visualization routines, whatever. Um, and, and so if it's, if it's, you're not willing to do the difficult side of things, you do not have that commitment. One of our previous guests, Stephen Kotler, author of The Art of Impossible, awesome read when you have some time. He expressed the importance of not being very forward facing in public with your goals saying, Hey, my name is Chris and I'm, you know, environment, blah, blah, blah. Because then I get the dopamine release in my mm -hmm. brain. Every time I tell somebody I'm doing this and that for good, but then I don't get the release when I actually do those steps and I stop doing the steps, but I continue to. Yeah. We saw this with the virtue right. signaling where people like, uh, they were able to track like a dopamine response from virtue signaling by telling people like, Oh, this is how good I am. Or this is where I, you know, this is how I'm better than the rest of the world. When those people actually doing it didn't result in any of that. So it was actually better to like right. stand up and, and, uh, you know, talk about all the great things that you've done and how virtuous you are and all this than it is to actually be that person. Right. Well, again, you know, don't tell me, show me, be, be that person. Don't tell me you're that person. But I mean, like, wouldn't, wouldn't experience, I mean, uh, I mean, we get back to that experience thing, but wouldn't like the person that you are daily, and maybe this is where this kind of deviates a little bit, where now you can kind of create an entire persona online that doesn't exist anywhere other than the figment of your imagination. Whereas before, if you did that, you were just kind of a crazy person. You're over there making, right. you know, preposterous claims. And dude, I used to hear it all the time, man. Like inventing the question mark? Ah, dude, uh, when I played the NFL... <laughs> All right, this was my favorite thing. I used to run in people, be like, oh, you, you know, you, you play for the Eagles or whatever it is. I'd be like, yeah. They would sit down and t or they would literally start these stories about like their high school football and like how if only their coach hadn't screwed them, they would have got to college and been playing in the NFL. And dude, I used to listen to people's high school football stories constantly. I loved them. And I used to always like, really? Damn, that's high school coach screwed you over? How come the schools didn't come out? Oh, he bad, you know, bad mouthed me. Man, you're, 
dude, uh, you know, you're a five foot seven quarterback. I totally see this. Like it's uh, it's just like this <laughs> this delusion. And um, it was pretty amazing. But like now it seems like with the Internet and the ability to kind of fact check everything or lack of ability that people can kind of create. And you've seen this in Olympic weightlifting where all of a sudden you're like, I've coached Olympic weightlifters. I've Olympic weightlifted. Um, you know, my wife has taken people to the you know biggest stages like this is what we do. This is what we live and breed. All of a sudden somebody starts a, you know, a Instagram handle or a website that has Olympic weightlifting and is kind of probably a little more well-branded or maybe worse. And next thing you know, in a year, they're like an expert without ever coaching anybody or really doing it themselves. And I know you've dealt with well, this. It's, it, it's your perfect slice of pie analogy right there. Is they're, they're creating a persona. They're showing only the, the great things. And it, so much of it is branding and marketing these days. And I can look at it two ways is, it drives me nuts, of course, as it should, um, because there's a, a, an utter lack of integrity on their part. At the same time, however, there is the ability for people to do background checks on someone like that, right? You, you can find this information out with a little bit of legwork. And so I look at it as anyone who is getting suckered by someone like that uh, from a consumer perspective, it's kind of your own fault. Right. And, and you're going to end up, um, you know, being saddled with whatever problems you have from following someone like that. Now, where it gets more frustrating is that someone like that can have zero experience um, and still end up being relatively successful because they will just take information from someone who is experienced. Because, I mean, I make the joke all the time. Catalyst Athletics is the number one place for people to plagiarize weightlifting information since 2006. Like, <laughs> and I you're see not my wrong. stuff I, everywhere, dude. My with favorite no credit is, uh, you know, there's there's statements you've made, and you know, we've been friends for a number of years, and I'll hear people repackage stuff, and I'll be like, man, sounds just like Greg Everett, you know, and uh, yeah. but. And, okay. and, and the worst part about it is, um, and I always try to do this, like if I learn something from somebody or I get something from somebody, I'm always the first to be like, hey, I learned this here. This is the individual yep. I got this. And I, I think what it allows you to do is stand on the shoulders of giants where it's like, hey, I, yep. I didn't figure this out. This is some really great information. This is where I got this. And I think it helps paint the lineage a little bit better than um, I've never done this before, but I got this website and now I have all this magical information where it just looks disingenuous. Right. And well, uh, it's amazing how many spontaneously materializing coaches there are these days. And, but I think that's a perfect example though, is, is it, it takes good character to be willing and to want to give credit to the people you learn from because you recognize that that is not. So, so someone who doesn't have that character and someone who doesn't have that ex experience looks at that as kind of um, a negative, like, well, I had to learn this from somebody, right? I couldn't just come up with it on my own. Versus someone like you says, yeah, I learned this from somebody and that's a good thing. That means I have that experience. I worked with this person. I learned from them. Um, you know, I, I'm aggregating all this information from my experiences, from my various mentors. That's good. That makes me better at what I do. It helps me help you more versus like refusing to accept or admit that you learned from other people. It's just a sign of uh, you're just freaked out about people finding out that you're not who you are or, or, or who you claim to be. And that goes back to the whole character issue. Are you confident yep. with your character? Do you know who you are? And more importantly, are you okay with saying, um, I didn't invent the, uh, you know, the light bulb. I was able to just turn, you know, flip the switch and it's, you know, now we're sitting in this ambient light. 
Um, but I mean, that's a, a, just a character issue. If, um, so like what you list in the book, like obviously like the journaling piece. And I thought that was great. I, uh, I used to journal and I did it for like one year and uh, it was early in my NFL career and I found it recently. And as I was going through reading it, it reminded me of a whole bunch of things that I'd forgotten. And I was so fucking mad at myself for not doing that for the course of my NFL career because there's so many amazing uh, situations, conversations, interactions that I've just lost to time and maybe, you know, uh, you know, and people are like, oh, it's from the hits to the head. I'm like, no, 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 it's not hits to the head. It's just the fact that you only have so much capacity to remember so many things that you need triggers to bring them back. Um, right. It's what I love about this podcast uh, is the fact that we've been able to sit down for a number of years and have these great conversations. And now I'm able to drop back in and remember, oh, geez, OK, now, I, you know, I remember having that conversation. I remember this point. It didn't I, I wasn't able to access it, but there's a record of it now. So right. like what are the steps like if somebody is like, you know what, like because I I think if you're like we said, if you're reading this book, you're probably past the point. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, there's always ways to clear the rubble and, and make yourself a better person, but you're really reading it with the intention of influencing others. At least that's the way I read this, that like, you know, me giving this book is important, but actually what I'm taking from this book and instilling it into my kids will probably result in, you know, in toughness. So like what steps if, if I'm a father, if I'm a coach, if I'm a, you know, a mentor, what steps can I put forth to those that I'm working with that, that to enhance their toughness based upon this? Well, I think that first and foremost is you, you have to set the example, right? You, you know, you know, as a coach and as an athlete, athletes end up, uh, resembling their coaches in terms of behavior and attitude and mindset and, and all those sorts of things. So regardless of what you say as a coach or a parent, what you do uh, is far more impactful. I look at, you know, my dad just died early last year and uh, given his eulogy, that was something that came to mind is that he was not the kind of guy who sat me down and was like, here's your life lesson for the day. It was, I learned so much for him from him just seeing how he lived Right. And so he was always setting that example for me. And he, he, I, I I believe recognized that I was curious enough and intelligent enough to pay attention to that. Right. Versus like, come here, we, we got to figure this out and you're an idiot. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to walk you through this step by step. Um, So that's number one. And then number two is, is finding ways to, um, associate whatever lessons you're trying to communicate with actual experiences, right? So rather than having these, these lessons without context and kind of just in a vacuum, um, you have to find ways to tie them to someone's experience, hopefully at the moment, or even like, Hey, remember that one time you did this and this happened? Well, let's talk about how we could have done that better, whatever the case is. Um, I'm struggling with perfect examples now, but uh, looking at keeping it into digestible chunks, right? Don't sit down and rattle off a, a bunch of philosophy for three hours at a 15 year old kid. Cause it's, yeah. that's not going to settle in there. Look at one, you know, practical actionable thing that they can do and give them an understanding of why that matters, right? Why does this, why is this important to do? What is this going to do for you or do for others? 
um, and then give them, you know, not that just that association with an experience they've already had, but also give them opportunities to actually practice and demonstrate that in real life experiences, right? So again, you know, as a parent or as a coach, you have opportunities to do that versus just throwing information at people and being like, I hope you can figure out how to implement this. So when we were kids, my mom used to just yell at us, you know, like, hey, brush your teeth. I never asked necessarily why you brush your teeth. I just got yelled at because I didn't brush my teeth. But it's pretty interesting. My daughters, I've tried to not yell at them. So like my daughter was like, why do we have to brush our teeth every day? I'm like, because one, you don't want your teeth to be yellow. Two, we don't want to, you know, when we go to the dentist, you don't want to have cavities. And so you go through all this same with like, why do you have to shower every day? Why do you have to wash your hair? And I like went through these things and I hadn't necessarily thought because they're just so routines, you know, like, uh, you know, you, I, we get up, we train I come back I take a shower, you know, you, you know, brush your teeth, you do all these things because they become a habit. And it was pretty interesting. Like, I just assume that's what people do because my mom yelled at us. And uh, I've tried to take a more philosophical approach of like, this is why you do these things. And then I realized sometimes with kids, you just got to just fucking kick them in the ass and yell at them that, you know, have a philosophical conversation with a nine year old isn't going to be as impactful as like, well, if I don't do this, I'm going to get in trouble. So I, I, I wonder so many times if like with the toughness thing, like if we can sit down and kind of explain it opposed from just like, let's just go out and do tough things that necessarily put you into a situation where you either have to quit or not quit. And the analogy I was thinking of was uh, this summer, it was hot, like, man, it was like 103 one day. And we had all of these, uh, like they're these melon plants that are kind of like weeds almost. And they, uh, they just take over and you have to like dig them out from the roots. And so we went out there and I was like, Hey, we got like 50 melon plants we got to get rid of in, in the pastures. Um, and so I'm out there with the kids and I'm like, you know, using a, like a pickaxe, like kind of digging them up, pulling them up. And then their job was to put them in the, uh, in the wheelbarrow or in the truck and just kind of like, you know, get them away. And it was hot and they were like, Oh my God, this is, you know, just complaining about the heat and the lack of water and this, and I'm dusty. And they're like, dad, how come you don't complain? And I was like, right. because the word, you know, like, cause I know complaining doesn't do anything. Complaining right. is, is, is what people who, you know, like, like it doesn't help anybody to complain. I know what work needs to be done. And regardless of like the temperature, the situation or what it requires, the work will always get done because that's just what the commitment we've made and like right. out there. And it was, uh, my, my, my wife was out there as well. And we're like, Hey, if we do this for like an hour, we'll just hammer all this stuff out. But it was interesting for them, like being like, how come you guys don't complain? How come you not to, you know, it's like, because that's not what we do. And I think like, we're not little crybabies like you. Yeah. And that's pretty much the shit I say to them. Like, cause I'm not a bunch of little bitches. Yeah. Uh, but that kind of mentality of like, well, this is just how it works. And I think so many times with toughness and you were talking about your dad and I, my dad will have passed away. It'll be three years, uh, February 28th. And I think I learned so much of this stuff just by seeing his work ethic and that like yep. his, his, uh, his nature. And he told me this a long time ago that you just got to put your shoulder against the door when the wind is blowing and just keep pushing that door, keep pushing forward into the wind and you just got to bury your shoulder and just never give up. And he's like, that's the yeah, analogy absolutely. for everything. And that's his whole deal. As long as you don't give up, like, um, you know, we were talking like, um, before I got married, he's like, just never give up, like never give in, never give up, never take the easy way out. And he goes, so many times people are like, well, I'm unhappy here. I'm going to go do something to blow this up. He's like, just commit to it and just never give up, never stop working on it. Never stop. Just keep moving forward. And his whole analogy was always like, you know, what was it? It was soldiering on just trying to, you know, trying to keep it together and soldiering on. He used to always talk about, but so many yeah. times, like 
that kind of analogy of like, I'm just going to keep my shoulder against the door and keep pushing the wind uh, is just kind of the, the foundation for this stuff that if you don't give up and you just persevere through it. And that's what I try to tell my kids. Like, as long as you don't stop and we continue to dig this, eventually we'll get the task done and then we can go inside. But the problem is if you right. quit now, we're going to have to come do it again. So let's just get the work done. And that piece of like, uh, you know, being able to persevere in the face. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, playing football, how many hundred degree days standing out there banging it for hours and people used to bitch in this. And I, I tell you, I was just like, just turn your brain off and just do the work. And, uh, um, but if you don't have those opportunities or you don't, or you don't put yourselves in those situations, if you never get in the ring, you know, I can beat up anybody. Great. Let's go box. And you get in, you know, at the, you know, 90 seconds into your first round and you're like, I'm not in shape right now. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Or or you take like that big one hard shot where you realize like, Oh shit, I can't smell anymore. Or, uh, you know, I can't see straight, (laughs) you know, do I feel like keeping my legs moving? Cause it's just easier to quit. Like, that piece is just something that you have to inherently learn. And unfortunately you got to learn it the hard way. There's no way for me to, you know, plug into the matrix. Like you remember in the matrix when he's like, I know Kung Fu and he, I know Kung Fu. Like, like like that's what I think people are hoping for that. Like, you know, they can just download it into a program, but unfortunately to learn to master Kung Fu, the training has to be severe and it has to be fucking hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I think your story there with the kids and the melon patch is perfect because, they had the experience physically. They endured this thing that they did not enjoy and they got it done because they stuck with it, but you didn't just leave it there. It wasn't just this miserable experience. They get back to the house like, Oh, that was freaking terrible. I don't ever want to do that again. And that's the end of it. You, you took that opportunity to teach them, Hey, this is what we need to do, right? We need to be able to commit to this task because it's important because it's meaningful And we're not going to complain about it because complaining accomplishes nothing, right? That's energy we could be putting into getting this thing done. And so they have the lesson, but they have the experience to associate with it versus just one or the other on its own, which is way less effective. So without that lesson, that experience just makes them resentful of their dad. Like, ah, my dad makes me pick up (laughs) fucking melon plants, right? (laughs) So they learn something, but they are probably learning the wrong thing. It's well, not a and, helpful thing. And also, I'm not out there uh, yelling at them about picking up melon plants as I'm sitting in the AC drinking a, you know, a cold beer. Yeah, that's a big part of it, that. too. Again, you know, that's that have, example. You're setting the example for them to see. Well, that's what I always tell them. I'm like, dude, I'll outwork you kids any day. I'm like, come on, let's, yeah. you know, let's go out and do this. And But it's um, – and I was thinking for your – you know, the fact that you coach Olympic weightlifters, how do you convey to the Olympic weightlifter that uh, this will not be easy – this will not be done quickly. And more importantly, it's going to hurt. It's going to, you know, there's going to be pain. There's going to be injury. And if you want to be great, you have to persevere through all that stuff. I mean, same with pro football and every other sport. Like, I, I don't know anybody who where it was just natural and easy and no injury. I mean, a few people, but for the most part, like a sport like Olympic weightlifting, I mean, fuck, just the tonnage and the pounding and the amount of exposure that you have to do to master that craft just becomes a good recipe for it. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And, and people learn relatively quickly that it's not going to be an easy process. And, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of of the mindset that you can't create motivation for somebody. Like they either want it or they don't. You can give them the tools to kind of cope with the difficulty and, and do things better. Um, you can encourage them and all those things. But if they don't want to do it, it doesn't matter what you say or do. They will not do what's necessary and they will not be successful. So that's 
it took me a while to figure that out as a coach. Um, and you know, you, you all the poking and prodding and incentivizing and threatening and all that stuff you try to do to get an athlete to do what you want. It ultimately doesn't work. Right. So it's more about trying to tap into that athlete's underlying motivation. Why do you want this? Why is this important to you? Right. And, and helping them keep that in mind versus you trying to impose your own motivation on them and kind of forcing them to subscribe to that, right? Because everyone, we all have different reasons for being an athlete, right? You have your reason for working as hard as you did in the NFL. I had my reasons for being an athlete. Um, and as long as we can stay in touch with that and associate that underlying reason with all those awful, boring, you know, unglamorous things that we have to do that aren't on social media, right? You know, I'm not taking videos of me eating and getting in bed at nine o'clock and whatever else. I'm just posting videos of me doing big snatches. Um, if we can keep those, th that underlying reason connected to the behavior, it's much easier to maintain that behavior and to appreciate what that behavior is doing, you know, in order to get you to that goal and, and kind of fulfilling that value uh, that you have. So to me, as a coach, it's more about helping someone remember that or even to discover what it is in the first place. Like, hey, let's let's think about this for a minute and figure out why does this matter to you? What is important to you about this? Because a lot of times they don't know. It's not something they're consciously aware of. And sometimes you'll figure out like the reason they're doing this is just because they're trying to get back at somebody or trying to prove their mean old dad wrong. And that, that's the kind of athlete who might be successful, not usually, but if they are, they'll, they're still completely unhappy. No matter how good they get, it's never good enough, right? Because it's this thing that doesn't actually mean anything to them. No, I think that there is a, um, man, I like for my athletic career, uh, I always had this really interesting, and this was kind of a, uh, something I, I recommend for nobody, but I always had a fear of failure, or I still have a fear of failure. But uh, I played and I trained and everything I did was somehow uh, to, you know, thwart fear in so many ways. And this idea that like the fear of failure was worse than anything else that would happen. Yeah. And I think because of that, uh, it was really hard to ever truly be happy doing what you're doing because there was such a feel that like it could be snatched away from you so quickly that mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, so I subscribe to this idea of like training and like, you know, uh, you know, going out there and, and besting somebody not for the, the, the love or the joy of competing, but because I didn't want to ever get beat and I didn't want to look like a failure. And I wanted to be able to, to, to do these things on the biggest stage and win. And when I did, I was more relieved that I didn't lose than like, you know, joyful and that I did it. Right. And it was, uh, you know, and I, and it, there was also this weird feeling where if I never really enjoy myself when it's snatched away from me so quickly, I won't be that upset. And so there was like this weird kind of dichotomy I've, I, I battled through and it took me almost, you know, many years after I, after I retired to like analyze this stuff and to go through it. And you talk about doing the work of like self-reflection of like having these dark moments where you're looking, you're like, God, why didn't you really ever enjoy this? Like the things that I enjoyed was the preparation, preparing for the fight. Like I, and yeah. you know, uh, we were on a podcast with Jason Dunn, one of my teammates. And he's like, man, when I saw you come running out of the tunnel, he's like, I'd never seen anybody run so fast and would like, yeah, I'd get hyped out of it. And the reason I ran so fast was I was trying to get to the fight quick Yeah, because I, I just wanted to fucking get it over with. I wanted to run out there and stab the dude in the neck and run away. 
And, um, <laughs> you know, like, whereas other people took their time to get out there and did all this shit. I just sprinted out there a hundred miles an hour and was like, who we got, you know, the, the age yeah. old Mike Tyson running into the ring. And, uh, I think about it now, like if I could go back with, you know, my experience now, what I have told the, my younger self, like, enjoy this. Like you have such a small window that if you're not enjoying every moment of this, you're leaving something that when all of a sudden you're later on, you're going to feel a little hollow compared to the experience. Right. And, uh, you know, that's something that I don't know if that's toughness. I don't know what it is. I mean, it was the, you know, my Bobby Boucher tackling field. That's what fueled me. That's what kicked me in the pants at 5 a.m. to get out of bed and go fucking train was the thought that somebody was out there training harder than me to make me look bad in front of millions of people. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's tough, man, because again, like you say, you can look back and say, I, I could have enjoyed and appreciated that experience so much more then, but you know, obviously you can't go back and change it, but you can try to derive as much of that appreciation and enjoyment from having had the experience now with that awareness. Uh, so it, it does come down to, to having that presence of mind and being willing to, you know, appreciate in the moment what's happening, even if it's not enjoyable in the conventional sense of the word, right? There's nothing enjoyable necessarily about getting the shit beaten out of you on a football field every single Sunday, like getting hit by a car. I assume it's pretty painful. I didn't play a lot, you know, beyond a young age, but the, the experience overall has so much to offer. And if you're not able to appreciate it in the moment, and what's the point? It, like you said, you're, you're kind of just trying to avoid something negative versus engaging in something positive. And so, you know, in any given experience, you can flip your perspective on that if you're paying attention and derive a lot more from it with that, you know, goal of it. what can I get out of this versus what can I avoid with this? Yeah. Well, it, um, it's pretty interesting in the NFL. There's so many people, I mean, everybody's there for different reasons. You know, and uh, you, you brought up an analogy that, um, you know, sometimes we equate, uh, you know, toughness with people that, you know, grow up in, you know, meager beginnings or, you know, fucked up situations. And somehow through this, you know, terrible childhood, they're able to persevere and create some inherent toughness. And I remember early on, um, I think it was Andy Reid actually asked my mom, he's like, you know, how does a middle class kid, white kid from Palos Verdes with two parents and, you know, everything like go out there and such an asshole. And he was like, dude, one of the toughest people I've been around, like, like, that's not historic how we would understand toughness to be. And my mom looked at him and she's like, what do you think? Uh, you know, basically my mom took it as an offense. You think I would raise or why do you think I would have raised a pussy for a son is what she said to him. <laughs> And Andy Reid kind of like <laughs> fucking shocked back a little bit. And uh, later on, he talked to me. He's like, oh, your mom's kind of a tough lady. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you, you ain't kidding. Um, but like there's this kind of common concept, you know, and it's not a misconception because it is true. But there's a common conception that, you know, somehow toughness and grit and all these things are formulated within adverse conditions that, you know, you got to grow up with, you know, a dad in jail and a drug addict mom and, you know, you know, people getting shot on the street and, you know, in these just, you know, awful austere conditions to grow toughness. But unfortunately, like that's not the case, um, you know, so I think because it's such an interesting thing, like it's kind of like um if you want to know where oranges come from, I'm looking at oranges sitting over there, like you go to where oranges grow, you go to an orange grove. 
but yet toughness right. is not like an orange grove. Like toughness is, is bred in interesting places and places that you wouldn't expect it. And so if that's the case, then there's really no universal application or maybe there is maybe like you said, man, like if, you know, if you are raised with high moral character, you know, you are constantly pushed out, uh, you know, you know, um, offered mentorship to increase your capabilities, challenge to increase your capacity. And then at the end of the day, help to understand commitment and then commit to that, to being able to, to master and push and do this and never relent and never give up. Then it feels like a pretty easy recipe and for something that is anything but. Yeah. You, each of us has a choice of what we do with the experiences we have. Right. And so, you know, none of us de- decided who our parents were or how we were raised. That's beyond our control. But we, what we can all decide is what we do with that. Right. What we choose to learn from that experience. Um, so yeah, you can come from the horrible fucked up childhood or you can come from a stable, loving family who had enough money to eat every day. And you can end up at the same place because of the choices you make individually. You can have people who go through terrible adversity, you know, in their lives and get nothing from it, right? They, they become, you know, cynical, miserable people and just who hate the world and, and have given up on their own lives. And you can have someone who comes from, you know, even a wealthy family, never had any particular needs but who comes out the other end due to their own decisions you know, to take advantage of what they could, you know, as some tough, um, you know, accomplished contributing person in the world. So it really is, does come down to that decision early on, or I shouldn't say early on at some point to use what you have available to achieve what you want to achieve. You got anything Tex? final piece here you end or, and ending to the book. One of them is universal basics of capability. So what, what was the motivation here to add these things and then give us some examples that our readers can go and hit on weekends? Yeah. I mean, it was, again, it was one of those things of what are the practical steps I can provide versus like, Hey, you should be more capable. And then, you know, because you say that to one person and they're going to come up with a bunch of useful stuff. You say it to someone else and, they're like, I don't have any idea where to start. So I just gave some, some really straightforward examples, which to me seem very obvious. So I kind of felt silly writing them down, but I'm like, I guarantee these are not going to be obvious to everybody. And this is, this is really stuff um, that underpins self-reliance, right? So this is everything from being at least basically capable and familiar with first aid to being capable of doing stuff like driving a manual transmission, right? And, and, my first few cars were all stick shifts, so it's no big deal to me. Do you, but do you still own a stick shift? No, I kind of miss it, honestly. Um, it, well, it depends on the car, but I, I, I finally quit on a stick shift when I was living in L.A. and driving <laughs> through commute traffic in a stick shift. You're just like, Definitely. fuck this. Yeah, you know? You're trying to eat food, change your shirt, and shift um, pretty much in and out of first and neutral down there. But uh it's one of those things where it's like, it seems so simple and so dumb, but you get yourself in an emergency and your only means of conveyance is a manual transmission car and you can't make it run. You're fucked. So it's, you know, it's little things like that. Um, and, and, you know, developing a basic, uh, literacy with tools, right. You don't have to be a master craftsman necessarily, 
But if you can't figure out how your various drills, drivers, saws, wrenches, whatever work, you're just kind of helpless in a, in a lot of situations. And so it, it was just kind of those those simple starting points where it's like, let's get you on your way here, um, get this basic, uh, you know, foundation of, of, of a range of capabilities. And from there, you can start building on those things into more specific regions that interest you or into the specific areas that are demanded by your profession or your locale or, you know, whatever the case is, your lifestyle. And a little barbell naturally to conclude. Well, yeah, he's got some barbell. I mean, there's, there's things on fitness. Like I, uh, man, I, I sometimes think, um, where at least when I was reading this, like, uh, in terms of like 2021, like what's the arena that we have to push people in? And I think about this all the time with my daughters, like, uh, you brought up a good point about gymnastics. Um, you know, my little girls have been in gymnastics two days a week since they were, I mean, 18 months old and they still go two days a week. And even though my daughter rides, my other daughter plays some sports, like they have to do gymnastics. And, uh, I told my wife, I'm like, they're going to do it until they tell them to not come anymore. Like, um, I, I take my son two days a week and I tell the guy all the time, I'm like, Hey, uh, I'm going to keep bringing him until you tell me not to bring him. And he's like, well, I'm never going to tell you that. And I'll, I'll take him there until, you know, he decides like, I'm going to go dad. I want to go do this. Cause it's so important. But, uh, like sports have really become like the bastion that we need to, to teach these lessons. Like there is competition and, and, you know, integrity and all these other things. Uh, it's kind of like um, I run into parents all the time that are like, oh, you know, would you know, knowing what you know now about football and brain injury, would you let your uh, your son play? And my comment is always the same. One hundred percent. The amount of lessons learned and relationships and things that I gathered from playing football. I mean, I learned everything good in this world from playing football and my parents and my brothers. Like I learned yeah. every life lesson. I learned how to work with people. I learned how to be accountable. I, I learned what hard work and perseverance and failure and success. I learned all those within the confines of that sport. Why would you rob your child of that opportunity because of something? And I'm not that head injury is, uh, um, is something to, to, you know, shrug off, but like, you know, there's a lot of ways to mitigate that. There's a lot of intelligent ways to approach it. I mean, you know, we don't put kids back in after they've had second concussion syndrome, which is where I think a lot of the problems happen. You know, we also don't push the opiates like we used to for, you know, NFL players. And, you know, my observation's always been that the guys that took the most amount of painkillers are the ones that had the most amount of problems. So I think that there are, it's a lot smarter today than it was 20 years ago. Um, but then I would never trade that experience and I would never want to rob my son of that experience because of some, you know, imaginary fear. Like you can't wrap your kids in bubble wrap and, you know, hope to God that you can somehow get them through. And I, uh, you know, I, I argue all the time and especially with some of my ex teammates, you know, who are bitter at their station. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, this is a once in a lifetime. Are you assuming that your son is going to get there? And why would you rob that opportunity to make that decision? So, um, I, I just look at like the uh, adversity and what we do with sport is such an important, important situation, especially as I'm reading through toughness. I'm like, a lot of this stuff is taught within the confines of sport and within training Absolutely. in this. And so, and, and I, don't, I don't think any truly meaningful experiences are without some degree of risk, right? Uh, you're not going to learn those lessons you learned in football, risking your orthopedic and potentially neurological health you're not going to gain those lessons by sitting on the couch and reading that or any other book, right? You have to get out there and take some degree of risk at some point to learn those truly meaningful lessons. Yeah. 
Well, dude, I, uh, I really enjoyed the book. It was good. And um, awesome. I, I look forward to implementing some of the life lessons and I've highlighted and underlined a lot of things. And uh, I think as I start, you know, running into more and more people, I'm going to be like, you need to read this book and especially the parts that I underlined. But also it comes down to me as the individual to read it, be able to absorb it and then be able to implement some of the things. And then also, um, you know, and I know this is it's such a trendy thing and you you brought it up. But this idea of doing self-help or I mean, self-reflection work. Because at the end of the day, man, nobody really wants to look deep within and see all the nuance in that in their soul. But I think you have to if you want to continue to grow. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not willing to do it, then don't bother starting because it's going to be tough, so to speak. Yeah, I would recommend I don't I'm not a father. I can't speak to that. But the value of any sport coaches out there, no matter the level, especially in the, the middle and the high school level, because you probably are communicating and talking about kids these days they need to now this is actionable steps for you to communicate to start to build that or give you the social intelligence to talk to the parents about these activities and lessons that you can start to see on weekends that are more productive than said camp so I, i certainly do believe sports teach lessons but more so the coaches that are involved in them and this is a great tool that you've got greg to empower coaches to create a tougher generation and our future leaders. Yeah. Oh boy. Awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, thanks for coming on power at the radio. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me anytime. Oh, I I mean, ship. I totally forgot. Uh, if people want to know more about it, like where, where can they find the book? And, um, obviously catalyst catalyst athletics, uh, you're easy to find. I mean, dude, you're all over the internet, but where can people find it? Could be an Amazon, um, you can get the book basically anywhere that sells books. Um, you know, your local store, if they don't have it, they probably won't have it in stock physically, but they'll be able to get it for you. Uh, if you want to support them would be great, but obviously Amazon, Barnes and Noble.com, uh, Powell's like anything online, you can get it and, uh, uh, hardcover all the ebook formats and then audio book will be out on the February 16th. So are you reading that? Yes. Ooh. I think there would be a, a, a peasant revolt if I didn't. I got so many people hammering me like, you're going to read it, right? I'm like, yeah, well, I'm not going to pay someone else to do it. So, uh, <laughs> But like, you know, what about some like uh, a witty English chap who gets on there and he's like, hello, you know? Like, yeah. You I, know what <laughs> drives me nuts about audiobooks is that the pacing on them is so slow it drives me bananas it's you like, gotta listen it's to going like and get and it out like you gotta get him in like, yeah. oh, like one and a half so i'm i'm a, a little more of a an excited pace on there and uh, i'll probably get some shit for it like hey you read too fast like well you listen too slow <laughs> and on so, that we'll note see. all right greg thanks for coming yeah. on power the radio and thank you for listening to another episode of the premier podcast and strength conditioning Bye. It's time for you to empower your performance. You can follow Greg Everett on Instagram at the handle Catalyst Athletics and his book Tough Anywhere Books Are Sold. Until next time, bye!